0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. The message today is this that God calls us to follow him. And the the call to follow him does not guarantee an easy, comfortable life. It means different things to different people in that following him is the same in terms of what we do, but where we follow him leads us to different paths. But the promise is that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Let me ask you one question that I'm going to ask you again at the end. And the question is this. If God has called you to follow him, have you slaughtered your oxen and burned your plow? You're looking next to the person next to you and going, what the heck are you talking about? I don't own any oxen. My yard's not big enough anyways. And I certainly don't have a plow. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19 and 20, there's a story of Elijah, the prophet of God, passing on the mantle to the next prophet. And the story goes like this. Elijah is walking through the fields and he sees Elisha behind the last pair of oxen. There are 12 pair of oxen. Elijah is at the end. And as Eli, or Elisha is at the end, as Elijah walks by, he takes his mantle and he places it over Elisha. Now, what we need to know is that passing the mantle is the same as uh, ordaining someone or, 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 or uh, christening them. It, it's the same weight of saying, you now fulfill my role. In other words, it's a way of saying, follow me because you are going to do what I have done. And when he puts the mantle on Elisha, he continues to walk and Elisha, Elisha let's go with the reins, and he chases after the prophet and says, will you let me go and say goodbye to my family? And Elijah's response is, do what you have to do. That was a way of the Bible telling us that Elisha was recognizing the weight of the call. He was recognizing the responsibility that was being placed on his shoulders. And so the very next verse says that he took uh, he, he took his oxen and he slaughtered them, and he took the plow and he chopped it up and put it under the oxen, and he burnt the plow to cook the oxen. He had a party for his family, and then he left to follow Elijah. It's a way of the scripture saying there was no turning back. There was no there was no questioning whether or not he was in it for the long haul. He wasn't just giving Jesus a chance. Now, I get it when, I, when we say, hey, would you just give Jesus a chance? But that is completely the wrong message. You don't just give Jesus a chance. He's worthy of more than that. It's not like you're going to do a 30-day money-back guarantee trial with Jesus. If you're doing a 30-day money-back guarantee with Jesus, you're not ready to follow him. It's not a, well, maybe you can solve my problem. Maybe you can give me eternity. Maybe I can trust you. No, following Jesus is a flat-out all or nothing kind of a deal. That doesn't mean, though, you're going to be perfect at it. It means that your heart is yielded to him in that moment where you say, Jesus, I am in this, no turning back. There's an old song that we sing in in big church. I have decided to follow Jesus. One of my favorite lines, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I'm afraid too many times the gospel, when it's heard, it's received as, I'm going to give Jesus a try, but I'm going to keep my nets and boats just in case. I'm going to give Jesus a shot, but I'm going to keep my oxen and my plow back in the corner just in case this doesn't work out for me. But Jesus' call to follow is not that way. Jesus' call to follow is, leave your nets, leave your ox, burn your plow, and come follow me. And I'm going to give you the punchline. The punchline of this whole message is this when Jesus says, Come, follow me, he's really asking two questions. These two questions popped into my mind on, on Wednesday when we were having our singer doll Bible study at my house. We were listening to a story of, of Brad and Mary Keel. And, and as I was listening, it dawned on me that Jesus' call to follow is really two questions. One, do you love or do you, un, do you believe that I love you? It's Jesus saying to you, do you believe that I love you? And then the second question is just like it. Do you trust me? So when Jesus says to you, come follow me, he's asking, do you believe that I love you? Why? Because you wouldn't follow someone that doesn't love you. Now, sure, you might might follow or conquer or something, but somewhere in there, there's this belief that what they're doing is bigger and greater than you and that they actually care about you and that it actually means something if you follow. So in there uh, is this idea of, is this person worth following? Do I believe that he loves me? And the second question, do I trust him? You can believe somebody loves you, but not trust them. You can trust somebody but not believe they love you because you can trust somebody who simply has skill. But when you put the two of those together, you have an absolute perfect scenario of of being able to completely yield in every single corner and area of your life. Now, when we say, do you believe that I love you? We're not asking, do you believe that I feel love for you? And it's not even, do you believe that I love you the way you understand love to be? No, it's a much deeper kind of love than that. It's the kind of love that can only be described by a grandparent and a grandchild, so I'm told. I am told that you love your kids, you love your grandkids. I'm not there yet. But I'm told it's the best of the best of the best, that a grandchild encapsulates every kind of perfect love that there is, but even still that kind of love falls short of the way that God loves you. Do you know that the Bible says, I am convinced neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor anything in all creation is able to separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Are you aware that his love is not conditional in any way, shape, or form? It has no boundaries, it has no limits, and it has no expiration date. God loves you in spite of you. He loves you with a love that is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world. That's you. That he gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. That's death. But would have eternal life. There is a love that is greater than any, any love that you and I could ever have for another person, and that's the love of God that is truly indescribable. It's truly limitless. It's truly bottomless. And when Jesus says, follow me, he's asking you, do you believe that I love you? The truth is, when we follow Jesus to begin with, it's a very small understanding of what that means. And my goal today is to show you a few My goal today is to help demystify what following Jesus actually is. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. You see, when I was born again at 15, I had I had been a church person all my life, and I and I loved Jesus and I loved God, but it wasn't until I was truly I wasn't really born again until I was fifteen. And I wanted to, I wanted to be the kind of follower that the Bible says to be, and so I thought that meant radical, zealous following. I thought it meant that I was supposed to sell everything I had and give it to the poor. And I thought it meant that I was supposed to die to myself, give up my dreams and give up my desires. I felt that it meant that I was to totally recklessly abandon all that I am and all that I would ever hope to be. And I really thought that I would be some dirt poor beggar living in a housing complex somewhere, serving and slaving away for Jesus. I really thought that that's what it meant if you truly were surrendered to follow him. The other side of that is what so many fall into, and it's a belief that to follow him is like you would follow a person on Twitter. You know what a, tweet, a Twitter follower is, right? It's someone who says, I'm following you, But really I just want the quick quips and I just want the short short, uh, uh, words of encouragement and I may agree with you and I may not. I'm just gonna keep up with you and I'm gonna keep track of where you are and what you're thinking and I might put some of that into my life but at the end of the day, my life is my life, your life is your life. I'm gonna adore you or acknowledge you from a distance and that is not follow me. Follow me is truly a yielding of yourself, but it doesn't look always as dramatic as we make it out to be. In other words, I want to move out of the ditches and into the middle of the road of what following Jesus means. And primarily, it is a heart issue that looks different for everybody. For the Jernigans, follow me was was into a place of of great suffering. For another, it might be into a place of great wealth and and, uh, influence. For most of us, it's living a life that is mundane and ordinary and pedestrian most of the time. We wake up, we put one leg in, we put the other leg in, we pull them up, and we do life. And the danger in not understanding that the ordinary is where God does his best work, if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, we can always be discontent thinking that God is not using us or doing anything in us, or we can become complacent and fall to the other side just as easily. The truth is, follow me is simply learning to hear and obey the voice of God. Of God. And it's a daily walk allowing Jesus to be Lord of your life. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins to call the first of his disciples. He begins by calling Andrew and his brother Peter. Chapter 4 verse 18 the bible says as jesus was walking along the sea of galilee he saw two brothers simon who was called peter and his brother andrew they were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen follow me he told them and i will make you fishers of men immediately they left their nets and they followed him they killed their oxen and they burnt their plow well they did But if you'll continue through the story, after Jesus was crucified, what did they do? They found their boats again and started fishing. And then going on from there, Jesus saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and his brother, John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and they followed him. So we have the first four disciples that Jesus called, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. What were they like? What kind of men were they? They were ordinary men. They were fishermen. We know nothing about them except for the fact that they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They were not high class. They were not rich. They were just ordinary citizens who you would have no idea that they even existed except that they followed Jesus. The thing that I want you to catch today is this. God takes the ordinary and mundane and when they yield to the life of Christ, when they follow Him, God makes a story out of their life that is worth telling for generations and generations to come. Now, here's the cool thing. The greatest men and women of the gospel in history, you and I have never heard their name, but somewhere on this earth, their name is repeated over and over and over because in their little slice of life, they made an eternal difference. And they were faithful to the task that God put before them. And because of that, they had a place in history. Oh, not just history, but a place in all of eternity. What I'm mesmerized by is the fact that your story has ripples that never end. And your story is a ripple of somebody else's life. Years and years and years before. I don't, I don't have the ability to tell you the, all of the details because literally I just remember this story. But if you think, if, if you go back and you look at it, um, there's a story of a missionary couple who went to a tribe in Africa and they were not allowed into that tribe. So they built a little hut outside of the tribe or outside of the, the village. And the chief of the village would allow them to own, he felt sorry for them, even though he wouldn't let them into the village for fear of angering the gods, he let one of the boys come out and sell them chicken and egg, chickens and eggs. That little boy, because he came out and sold chickens and eggs to this missionary couple, that little boy came to faith in Jesus. Well, tragedy happened in that another child was born to this missionary couple and the mother died as a result of the childbirth. The father was so despondent, he was so broken that he eventually gave the child away, left the mission field, and became an alcoholic. He abandoned God altogether, or at least he tried to run away from God altogether, because he had felt like he had given his life to follow Jesus, and all of his efforts wound up just hurting him greatly. And if you fast forward Several years past that date, somehow or another, this young girl who was adopted became aware of a story to where that boy who was selling them chicken and eggs took the gospel back into the village and a large number of people in the village became believers in Jesus in the middle of the nowhere of Africa. And what what, what she discovered was that sacrifice of following the ordinary person who did that God honored it and blessed it and she actually went back and found her father and said listen I want to tell you what God did and he renewed for the story I think he renewed his faith and he realized he really should have not walked away but the point is it was in the ordinary you and I would never know that story we would never know their name even now, I can't even remember their name. Svea, S-V-E-A is the first name of the girl. But here's the cool thing. There are stories like that duplicated hundreds and thousands, maybe even millions of times throughout human history. One day when we are dead and gone, our life will have counted if we follow Jesus. Our life will have made a difference to someone we may never know the difference. But following Jesus simply means I yield to God and I'm learning to obey or to hear and obey his voice. Matt, uh, Peter probably didn't plan out his life this way. He probably expected just to fish the rest of his life. What happened though is for the next three years of his life, he followed this man named Jesus. He witnessed miracles. He saw the sick healed he saw the blind see. He saw the, the shriveled hand become whole. He saw the woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years become totally healed. He saw the harlots and the prostitutes find forgiveness and become, become um, 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 uh, basically welcome back into at least a portion of society. He, he saw all of these things with his eyes and even then he struggled with what it meant to follow Jesus. You see, you might have this idea that following Jesus means one thing, but you might have made it be more complicated than it really is. You might have very little grace for yourself. And you might have this constant uh, voice over you saying, you failure, you slacker, you loser. Why can't you be more committed? Why can't you be more faithful? Maybe maybe you're not committed. Maybe you're not faithful. Maybe you are slacking. But maybe, just maybe, you have the wrong idea of what being a follower of Jesus really is. Maybe you do love God and you are trying to pursue him. And maybe you've put the level up here because you've heard all these stories and you're like, if that's not my story, then I have failed. And what if God was saying to you, your story is not their story? Your story is your story. God doesn't need another Billy Graham and he doesn't need another Sophia, and he doesn't need another Jonathan Edwards. He needs a whatever your name is because there's one you, which means there's one purpose and plan that God has for one you. Turn to the person next to you and just say, your story is your story, not mine. So he calls James, uh, uh, James and John, he calls Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And his calling was, follow me. And then you skip over just a few chapters into chapter nine, you find that he calls another person. In chapter nine, verse nine, he says, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this and said, it's not the well who need a doctor, but it's those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but for sinners to come to repentance. Who is it that God is calling to follow him? He's calling sinners. He's calling the broken. He's calling the busted and the reject and the outcast. You cannot be saved if you are self-righteous. It is impossible for you to be born again if you think that you don't need to be born again. If you look in the mirror and you adjust yourself and you say, man, I am looking good today. Dapper, I think is the way it said. And if your heart says, I'm not as bad as they are. And if when you look in the mirror, you say, isn't God glad that I'm alive? Aren't I a gift to the world? Now we might not be that flagrant or flamboyant about it, but the truth is a self-righteous heart is usually a very deceptive heart. We normally don't even recognize self-righteousness in ourselves. It takes conviction of God's spirit to show us we're not as good as we think that we are. You cannot be born again until you see yourself for who you really are. And the Bible says that all of your righteous acts are like filthy, stinking, rotten, dirty rags. That's not a message people want to hear today. They want to hear that they're okay and that they're good. I'm telling you, you are not good and I am not good. I can pretend I'm good. I can, sh- I can fake like I'm good. But in my heart of hearts, I am a dirty, rotten, desperate, filthy sinner that was redeemed by the grace of God. And every single day, God has to continue to remind me that it's only by grace that I have been saved. Amen. Only by grace. So for Jesus to call you to follow him, You've got to recognize that you're no better than Matthew, the tax collector. Now, let me tell you about a tax collector. We don't like tax collectors today, but we don't dislike them as much as they disliked them back then. Back then, a tax collector, especially Matthew, he was the hated, the most hated man in the entire, in the entire city. Why? Because the Romans extracted taxes from the Jews. Now, the Romans basically conquered and, and they, they didn't keep the Jews as servants, but they were basically keeping their thumbs down on them. They took taxes from them. And as long as the Jews didn't create too much trouble, they kind of let them do what they wanted to do. So the way they collected taxes was they took a Jewish man and they put him in charge of collecting taxes from the Jews. And they told that man, you collect us X amount of dollars from each family. Anything above what you charge, you get the pocket and you get to keep. So not only was Matthew working with the enemy, working with the captors, working with the ones who had their thumb down, but he was also turning around and backstabbing his own people by taking money from them. And he was perfectly justified by the Romans in doing so. He was despised. And as Jesus was walking by, Jesus said, come follow me. This despised man would never have been the choice of a Messiah for a disciple. What the Jews had in mind was Messiah was going to come and declare freedom from the Romans. He was going to be a conquering king, not one who would give grace and mercy to a slime ball like Matthew. And yet Jesus said to Matthew, Matthew, I'm offering you a relationship and then he also called another one, Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were a whole other category of people. Zealots were the ones who did not like the Roman oppression, and they thought that the Jews weren't going fast enough to declare freedom from oppression. And so they walked around as many assassins. They carried daggers inside of their cloaks, and they would walk through a crowd looking for opportunities to kill soldiers. They would walk through and stick a dagger up through the, uh, the crack in the armor, and then walk away, and the person would, would bleed out. And so who did Jesus call? He called fishermen. He called a tax collector. He called a zealot. We also know that he called a doctor. Matthew or the Gospel of Luke was written by a physician. He was brilliant. The way he writes the, uh, the gospel of Luke, you can tell that he was detail-oriented. He was, he was well-educated. He wasn't just some ordinary, you know, run-of-the-mill educated person. He was in an upper, upper echelon of people. We know that as we look at all the people that God has called, he did not make a difference if they were rich or poor or what color they were or what class of people they were. The gospel was for everyone as long as they were not self-righteous. As long as they knew that they needed a physician. And so when God has called you, he's called you to follow him. What does that mean? That means he's called you to learn to hear and obey the voice of God. It means that he's called you to yield to him in everything. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to sell all you have and go to Africa. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to sell all you have and give it to the poor. I used to think that that was the verse that God was saying for everybody. You remember that in the scripture? The the, the rich man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? Sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. I thought that that was the litmus test for what it meant to be a disciple. No, that's what Jesus said to that man. Why? Because that man's problem was an idol, was idolatry of stuff. That's what Jesus said to him. What he said to every disciple was, follow me. Which means, learn to hear my voice and do what I say in your context of life. It's kind of funny. Because we automatically think that following Jesus means this awful, terrible thing. But it goes back to the question, do you believe that I love you? And do you trust me? Brad told us the story on Wednesday. Brad and Mary Keel, they were members of the church here 10, 12 years ago. Had two little kids. They're now bigger kids. They've since adopted a kid. They had a house over here that was 3,000 plus square feet. They actually had three houses. They had two in Gulf Breeze, and they had one in Pensacola. They rented the one in Pensacola. They sold the one in Gulf Breeze, actually, to me and my family, and they lived on Sunset, two-story, giant two-car garage. He served as a pharmacist, good income, very stable. They could walk the kids down the street in the, in the stroller. They, they had pretty much the perfect family life but they heard the voice of God and because they decided to follow Jesus, their yes was on the table. That's one of the phrases that they use. A matter of fact, I think that's where I learned the phrase. They wrote a blank check to God and they said, God, we will go wherever you want us to go. We'll do whatever you want us to do. Our yes is on the table. We just wanna hear you and obey you, whatever that means. They heard the voice of God saying, I'm calling you to go to San Francisco and start a church. San Francisco at the time was known as a church planter's graveyard. Nobody in their right mind started a church in San Francisco because if you did that, you were going to fail. They heard the voice of God. They looked around at their house. They looked at their job. They looked at all the comforts. But then they remembered what they had heard from God. See, years before in college, they had heard God say, I'm going to use you with the Chinese people. I'm going to use you in my kingdom to make a difference. And because their yes was already on the table, when this question of will you leave what you have and will you go, it really wasn't a question. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. So they began to prepare. They started to act in faith and they said, okay, we're going to follow Jesus where he leads us. We believe this is where he's leading us. And I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but basically they left here before he knew that he had a job, before he even knew he passed the exam to be able to have a job. They sold everything they could. They packed it in a U-Haul, and they started driving to San Francisco. They had a rental house in Pensacola that was not selling. Literally a couple of weeks before it was go time for them to move, They got a call from a neighbor, and the neighbor said, "Uh, Brad, your house is on fire. The house had a squatter in it and had caught the place on fire, so they no longer had to sell a house. You want to talk about confirmation of the will of God, right? They were concerned. What are we going to do with this house? We can't. Done. They settled. It 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 was a wash. Before they sold their house here, they had to sign an, a lease for an apartment in San Francisco, which by the way, their house in San Francisco was an apartment that was less than a thousand square feet. They went from 3,000 plus to less than a Two little kids and a U-Haul full of stuff. And they miscalculated. And when they got there, had to sell even more stuff. As they were signing the lease agreement... Literally, as the agreement was on the table and as they were signing it, they got a call from their realtor that said, we have an offer on your house. You want to talk about a fun life? You might be like, I don't want that kind of fun. But let me tell you something. You don't understand how sufficient God is until he shows himself sufficient. And you can't see a miracle till you need one. If you keep supplying all of your life's needs, you'll never see the true hand of how God really can supply needs. It's not until we're desperate that we realize that God is all sufficient in every way that he needs to be. So how do you get there from here? You say to God, my yes is on the table. Yes, I'll follow you. I want to learn to hear and obey your voice. One of the coolest things that I've ever seen is this. As I listen to people's stories, and this is the reason I don't get discouraged a whole lot, because I get to hear some of the greatest God stories on the planet through you. The reason I'm encouraged is because I see that the hand of God has been moving you for your entire life. God didn't call you when you were born again. He called you when you were born. And it just took until you were born again for you to realize it. His plan has been active in your life far longer than just that moment in history. So close your eyes and bow your head for a moment, if you will. I'm going to ask you again. Have you killed your oxen and burned your plow? If not, what's holding you back? it's probably because you don't believe he loves you and you don't trust him. I'm asking you to change that today. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to trust him. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not righteous. I trust you, Jesus, with all of my heart. And I do ask you to save me. I am not worthy. But you are. This morning we're going to sing as we always do. But as we started the service, remember what I said? Let whatever it is that God is doing in you. But let there be something that you do to note that. So that you can say, God, I've heard you. And I'm taking a step towards obedience we stand your feet maybe it's a prayer maybe it's telling the person next to you maybe it's kneeling or sitting or maybe it's coming here maybe it's saying something to me as we sing for just one or two moments would you respond how God would allow you and call you to respond right about